This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, this is Jay Har with this latest edition of the Amazing Mental on my podcast. And your special guest this week is my old friend, Mr. Mike Dyer. Mike, can we do this? I wanted to start the interview backwards at the end of your career, if that's okay. Because I think you can show fans what kind of guy you, you are. Um, this is mid-December 2015. I'm riding home in a little rainstorm in New Jersey, and something comes over, FAN. Uh, Mike Kadir has retired from the Mets. I literally drove off the road. I knew, <laughs> I knew, I called my boss. I said, what's up? And I guess what happened, Mike, is that you had to register with MLB the night before, and somehow it got out. And you were supposed to write something for the Players Tribune, which you did, but it got out the night before. You know, Mike, I've been in this game a long time, 40-plus years, and I can never, ever remember a player giving back money like you did on the second year of your contract. What went into that, Mike, and how did that come about? Well, I, I think, first of all, to, to talk about how it kind of transpired, I wanted to talk to everybody first. I wanted to talk to you to give you a heads up. I wanted to talk to – to Terry and tell him. And I, I did not expect everybody to find out through the, uh, the AP wire. Um, so that's kind of how, how that happened. I, I don't know how, I still don't know how it leaked, but um, I was going to, that was a Friday and I was going to wait and contact everybody Saturday and Sunday and then have it come out on Monday. Um, however, it was going to come out. And then I was going to do the, the Players Tribune article. Um, unfortunately it's not how it unfolded. It, and then I had to do a lot of, a lot of calling and a lot of answering phone messages after that, obviously for, um, for obvious reasons. But uh, to answer the second part of your question, you know, Jay, I, I wanted to play baseball as a kid because I loved the game. I, I loved playing the game. I loved practicing the game. I loved the bat in my hand. I loved what it felt like to throw a baseball. Uh, I loved putting my spikes on. I loved looking at in the mirror and seeing myself in a uniform. And then when I got into the, to the major leagues, that all just amplified, right? Um, you know, I never took a day for granted of being in the major leagues and I never took a, a, the opportunity to put on a major league uniform for granted. And I would say at, that, at the end of that season, as great as that season was, 2015, my first and only time ever playing in the World Series, the magic that we had that season, the camaraderie, the chemistry, everything that we had in that season. When I got home in that offseason and, and I had to stare another surgery, I had double core surgery uh, in that offseason, and I had to stare not only that rehab, uh, in the face, but also then preparing my body to get ready for the, the next 162 game season, but also dealing with the emotional um, emptiness with my family at home. I've got three young kids. I had three really young kids at that time. My wife was at home and I wasn't going to see them for another three to four months through spring training in the first couple months of the season while they were here in Virginia at school. 
So knowing all of that and putting all that collectively together, I just knew I wasn't going to be able to give everything that I was used to giving, not only to the New York Mets, but also to baseball, this, this sport that, um, that gave me so much. And not only that, but the people that allowed me to experience the things that I experienced, they deserved my best as well. And I just realized I wasn't able to give that best and, um, which ultimately led to that decision. And, you know, I never played the game for money. That was obviously a great byproduct of, of being a professional athlete and being a major league baseball player, but it was never my motivating factor. My motivating, my motivating factor was always the love for the sport and the love for the game. And at that time I felt that love kind of drifting away and, and moving into other aspects of my life. And, and I needed to give those aspects the same attention that I gave baseball all those years. You remember what Sandy or Jeff Wilpon said to me when you told them that you wanted to not, you know, do the second part of your contract? Right. Well, they, they weren't happy. Um, I can tell you that they, they weren't happy just because they felt that obviously, and, and I felt too, that I still brought value to the team and, and could contribute in multiple ways and multiple facets uh, but they also knew where my heart was and they knew where, uh, you know, they, they were more concerned with me than they were concerned with obviously the payroll, um, you know, and, and, but, but given that money back, um, you know, however it was allocated, if it was, if it was able to help, that was great. But I think what their first, first and foremost concern was, was, was me and my well-being. And then after that, they turned their attention, obviously, to the team when it was all said and done. And, and I, I, I tell you, I can't credit Jeff enough um, with the way he handled that situation. Ultimate class, ultimate class my whole time throughout the organization in that year and a half, um, just treated my family with respect, treated me with respect, and I've got the utmost respect for him. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Let's, Kyle, let's jump back to Beanie. Ch Chesapeake, Virginia. We have Micah Dyer. David Wright, the Upton, uh, Upton brothers, Ryan Zimmerman, and Mark Reynolds. Who am I leaving out? Uh, I mean, at, at that time, that was that was pretty much the the nucleus. Yeah. That was that was pretty much the guys. What? Why for that area? Why do you think? I know you know speaking to David a lot. They had great AAU teams, great other programs, and American Legion programs. What do you account for, like, the plethora of, of, of players from that area making it to the majors? Well, I think the first and foremost is even prior to, to me being drafted in the first round, and John Curtis, who was also my, my teammate in high school, was also drafted in the first round. We were only the second set of high school teammates to be drafted in the first round at that time. Uh, before us was a plethora of talent. A lot of guy, a lot of talented players, a lot of good baseball players. They just never got noticed. And it was prior to the this era right now that we're in with all the showcases and and what you have it where guys can travel the country as as amateurs to to be seen and be noticed. Um, I think I was the first one to kind of explore that route and in, in the sense that I would go to college camps and in the summer and whether it was college coaches or major league scouts took notice at a young age and then started coming to some of the games and then realized how much talent we had in this area. And because of that, guys were able to then get their exposure. Now, after that, they took care of it themselves. You know, I know David likes to credit me with kind of giving the blueprint, 
which is fine and great, and I, I appreciate that for them. But they had to still go out there and play and still go out there and prove yeah. it when, when the scouts and evaluators came around. Mike, I don't know if you well, he did does it. I don't know if you read his book. You know, uh, you're he, he was Hickory High School, Great Bridge High School. You're about three years older than David, right? I mean, I think you know. Did you play? He said there was one story in the book that he was uh, on the same field that he was, and you were hitting fly balls onto his field. How much interaction did you have with him uh, in, in the high school days? Well, not too much because I was a senior. When I was a senior, he was still in eighth grade. So he wasn't able to play um, high school baseball in my whole time of, of being in high school. But I had known of him. We, you talk about the AAU teams in our area. There was one guy by the name of Townie Townsend right, who kind of right. created that, um, that AAU circuit in our area. And he would also do clinics and camps throughout, um, throughout the summers and throughout the fall and you know, I think David and I would go to a couple of the same camps. Obviously, he was in the, the age division younger than me, but I would definitely know him, definitely see him, definitely heard of him. And then once I graduated and went into pro ball, I would always keep tabs on, on the local talent, and local, uh, the local circuit here in high school baseball. And obviously, you know, you can't, you can't talk about high school baseball here in Chesapeake without mentioning David Wright. And you got so far as I know, you committed to go to uh, Florida State and – he had Florida State among his commitments in, in Georgia Tech. And do you, when you went to the pros, do you, did you, when did you really start to keep in contact, contact with him? Were you both in the pros or? Yeah, I think it was once he got drafted and once he signed with the Mets at a young age. That's kind of when I, um, you know, I, I was very fortunate my first couple of years in, in minor league baseball and professional baseball to be surrounded by some good guys. Matthew Lee Croy, who was an All-American at Clemson, played with us for the twins for a few years and Corey Koski played with the twins. I was very fortunate to be kind of mentored and at least, you know, kind of told what to expect once I got into pro ball, that when David got into pro ball, I, I kind of felt like you know, to be maybe his sounding board, at least for the first few years and whether or not I helped him, I, I don't know. Um, but I feel like I was at least there to kind of tell him that you're going to go through some ups and downs and, you know, and then he wasn't obviously in the minor leagues for very long. And once he got into the big leagues, it was more of a friendship than it was a mentorship. Yeah. I know, Mike, you gave back, you give back a lot to community. I know he picked it up from you. And I met you a lot of his charity affairs. I, I'm going to blouse up the name of the hospital, the Kings. You know what? The daughter, I'm like, I can't remember the name. <laughs> it's a, it's a law, whatever. It's, it's the largest children's hospital in Norfolk. And uh, you did some stuff, and you would always go back with the Uptons, and the guys would reunite there. It took about what for a young guy. He started a foundation. He was 22, 23 years old. It's pretty good awareness of what's going on in the world, huh? Absolutely. CHKD is it's Chesapeake, our Children's Hospital of King Daughters here. You would, you got it. In Virginia, <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I think when it comes to charity, uh, you know, Sammy Sosa is famous for the line of baseball has been very, very good to me, right? Well, baseball is an innate object. It can't be good to you. The people in baseball have been good to me. The people in this community here in Chesapeake, Virginia, have been good to me. The people like yourself, Jay, have been good to me. And that's what is the driving force, in my opinion, for, for charitable work and giving back is, you know, people make a difference. And I want to be, and David wants to be, and is, 
one of those difference makers in other people's lives. And I think if we can all do that, if we can all strive to be difference makers in other people's lives, then the world's going to be a great place. And um, hopefully we can all put our fingerprint on that. So, so in 2013, the All-Star Game is at City Field. Were you surprised at all to get a call? Maybe you were to get a call to be a, you know, we had a great career in like 15 years, All-Star Game, Silver Slugger, you know, 280 Bay, where you really were known as a home run hitter, right? I mean, is that mm-hmm. fair to say? I mean, you did hit, did hit two home runs in one inning one time. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, but, I, had a, I, had, I had a few seasons where I hit some homers and stuff, but yeah. no, you're right. Um, and, and talking about that 2013 home run derby, was I surprised to get a call from David? Um, so in, I, I think it was 2008, it was either 2008 or 2009. Um, a buddy of mine was a, a local high school coach, got, got the high school coaching job at a brand new high school here it's called Grassfield High School in Chesapeake and we were trying to think of ways to raise money to build a batting cage building for the school so I came up with the idea of hopefully having a home run derby and I contacted David Ryan Zimmerman Mark Reynolds and the Upton brothers and myself and we did it we put on a home run derby and um, I ended up taking those young boys to school in that home run derby and maybe maybe that left a lasting impression in david's mind when it came around in 2013 when he was the uh the captain but i am forever indebted to david for picking me to be on that home run derby team because out of everything that was able to happen in my career i mean that is right up there at the top it was something that i always when I was in the garage in the driveway as a young kid, I would always envision myself, all right, I'm in the home run derby at the major league baseball home run derby. And you picture King Griffey jr. Hitting balls off the Camden yards, um, the warehouse in right field. And, you know, so to have that become a reality and, and David be the reason that, and I know he took some flack. He took some flack for that, not only in New York, but through, through major league baseball and he stood up for me and that really meant a lot. And um, man, I had the time of my life and, and didn't show too bad in, in that. In that no, show. you did. My career is great. You know, 2013 with Colorado, you win the batting times 331 hit for a couple of cycles. I mean, you know, cl- uh, close to over 800 um, RBIs, um, 133 doubles, no more than 333 doubles. Yeah. <laughs> but, how much so you signed with the Mets pretty quickly after the 2014 season? I think it was November. I mean, that's really mm-hmm. a quick signing. Um, how much influence did David have with that signing? David had a lot. You know, David was the when uh, when the season was over, when the World Series was over in 2013. Literally, the first person that texted me was David, and he was like, "Now that you're officially a, a, a free agent, I'd love to start the recruiting process." Um, little did I know how quick it was going to have to be. Um, and that was because of the qualifying offer, you know, business, business comes into when we talk about major league baseball. And I did not, I I did not expect to get the qualifying offer from the Rockies. Um, really nobody expected that to happen, but it, it did happen, which, which meant that I had a short amount of time, a a very small window to be able to make it work out where I was going to sign with the team. And, and make sure I knew I had a team lined up because they had to give up a, uh, a compensation pick uh, to, to be able to sign me. So I had that small window or I was going to accept the qualifying offer from the Rockies. And once that qualifying offer got happened, it kind of went quiet for a couple of days. And then uh, Sandy and, and 
contacted me and we were able to make it work out. And, you know, it was, it was definitely obviously one of the best decisions I ever made, getting place, play closer to home, getting to play in New York city and obviously getting to play for a very, very special team uh, that 2015 season. Mike, you know, really nothing new. You're kind of a victim of, of happenstance that year. Your roles really changed during the year. I mean, you got hurt in July. Um, mm -hmm. We bring Conforto up in July, make the trade for Cespedes. You know, one thing I always admire you, Matt, you, Mike, you know, a veteran guy, all the accolades, you never once bitched about your kind of diminished role. Maybe that's not the right word, but you didn't, no. you didn't play that great. You didn't play that much in the end. But yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. another guy would have, you know, gone to a paper, one met said, you know, that what happened. But how did you manage to keep everything in perspective that whole year? Well, I think the first and foremost is when I was, when I was 18 years old and I got drafted by, to, to play for the Twins, the one thing I really wanted to make sure was that I was going to be a good self-evaluator. I was going to look at myself in the mirror at each stage of my career, and I was going to be able to, make, to come up with hard truths. You know, because you see so many times in the minor leagues, guys play five, six, seven, eight years trying to get called up. Well, then you're, you're, you're kind of lost. And, and once the, the dream is, is unrealized, you're kind of lost and you really don't know how to do it. And I, I promised myself that I wasn't going to do that. So I was going to be a good self-evaluator to where if I got three years down the road and it didn't look like I was going to be able to experience my dream at the big league level, I was going to then pivot and go back to college and go to school and start a new career. And I think by having that mindset at an early age, it allowed me to enter each stage and each phase of my career being a good self-evaluator. In the middle of that season, I realized that, you know, I wasn't the player that I expected myself to be, and I wasn't the player that the, the Mets brought on. But I could still add value to that team. I could still add value to, to our run and, and our hopes of making it to the World Series. Conforto needed to be playing. He needed to be in our lineup. And in order for us to be as successful like we wanted to be and make it to where we wanted to go, we had to have Michael Conforto in the lineup. And Michael Conforto needed to be as comfortable as he possibly could be in order to perform. So I felt like at that point, my role shifted to kind of make him feel comfortable, but also still adding value when I did get out on the field to play, whether it be a pinch hit at bat or, or whether it be the game on the line in the ninth inning, and I was still going to be able to give you a professional at bat. But that was kind of how, how it happened for me is, is knowing what your roles are and being okay and losing the ego. I think that's first and foremost. The, the sooner you can lose your ego as a professional athlete, the longer and better your career is going to be. Mike, are you surprised it with the career that you know, Mike Conforto has really blossomed to one of the stars in the National League now? Looking back, being here at the beginning for me, are you surprised at how he's progressed? No, not at all. I mean, I, I, I don't know if I told Kay Long or somebody uh, that year, 2015, that some, at some point Michael Conforto is going to be MVP. Um, and I don't know when that's going to be or, or um, how it's going to be. I still firmly believe that at some point he's got, he's got all the makings, not just the talent, but the wherewithal, um, the, the eagerness to learn and continue to improve. He's got that whole package to be the MVP uh, of the National League. And um, hopefully this is the year. Yeah, Mike, you know, I've told you this a million times, you're one of my favorite guys for a lot of reasons. In the, in the playoffs, you weren't playing all that much, but anytime I needed an interview, 
you know, a lot of times the guys play every day, you know, and there's so much press in the World Series. I remember one time we, we had lost the, the first two games in Kansas City, and we needed somebody to represent the team in an interview. I went to you right away. Always said yes. Was it something was ingrained in you from your beginning to know the media was a part of stuff like that? You had to be, be helpful to them? Well, absolutely. Everybody's got a job. In order to make Major League Baseball work, in order to make the whole thing work, everybody's got a job and everybody has a role. Players, our role is to go out there and play the game and provide entertainment. But the media's job is to be able to disperse that entertainment through the fans. And, you know, as, as a player, the, the quicker you can realize that, the quicker you can understand that, and the quicker you can tell your own story through the media, again, the better off you're going to be, to be your own narrative. And, you know, I think that's the thing is, is and again, it's being honest with yourself and being a self-evaluator and, and being accountable um, as long as you're those things, then at least people can respect you. They may not like you. They may not want you to be on their team, but they can at least respect you. And that's yeah. all I cared about. Yeah. I, wanted, yeah. I wanted to be respected. You never, you never made down, Mike. What, what do you remember? Game five, game five, uh, we lead two nothing. Harvey strikes out the last batter in the eighth, eighth inning. Crowd is going crazy. Then we win that game. We have the Groms in the guard going next to and then all of a sudden, poof. What, I mean, that scene when Matt walked off the mound, I know Terry took a lot of flack for letting him pitch in the ninth inning, but, you know, he wanted to pitch. I mean, it was I've never been in a stadium that loud before. That, yeah, that no, game. that was that was awesome. Um, yeah, that was, that was one of the – even though obviously the result didn't end up the way we wanted it to, that was one of the cooler moments that I've been able to witness and experience in my career. Um, being in the dugout, dugout next to Harv when, when TC had the conversation with him and, and seeing the manager stand behind his player was, was awesome to see. And I'll say it to the day I die, and my, I would have done the exact same thing. I would have had Harvey go out there and knowing, knowing what the, the look in Harv's eyes were when he was going out there, knowing that everything that had transpired throughout the course of the season, knowing that he wanted that ball in that moment, I mean, I, I – I don't. I would have done the yeah. exact same thing a thousand yeah, times out of a thousand. Hey, hey, Terry, Terry never backed off at all through, through no. the years. Got a lot of heat. One crazy question: You don't have a deck of cards by you, do you? <laughs> I unfortunately don't. You know, I've tried to do some magic tricks. You know, this this time that we're in, we've we've obviously had to do a lot of Zoom meetings, a right. lot of Zoom calls, and I've tried to do some of my card tricks over over the internet or over the uh, the. Uh, the zoom, but it just doesn't work out that well. And, um, but I, so I, I don't unfortunately have any. Well, how did you first get into magic, Mike? I know you see entertainers in the locker room. How did you, uh, how did you first get into that? Uh, you know, I was always enthralled, like at a young age, nine, 10 years old. I think all little kids are kind of enthralled with the illusions and magic, you know, whether it's the taking the a coin out of your ear when you're three or four years old or, or, the basic simple card tricks and I was no different. And I, as somebody, I don't remember who it was, taught me a mathematical card trick at, at like 10 or 11 years old. And I used to take those, that trick to different summer camps. And, you know, at somewhere along the line, somebody showed me a new technique and I was able to build off that technique and started making up tricks on my own. And at first when I was in high school and I would go to these camps, whether it be a baseball camp or showcase tournament or whatever, 
I would use it to make my meal money. I would sell the tricks and uh, I would sell them for like, I would sell them for like $20. Somebody would want to know how to do it. I'd show it to them. I'd be like, I'll show it to you as many times as you think you got it, but I'm never showing it to you again. Of course they would forget how to do it. So I knew my tricks were always safe, but I was able to make a little extra income as, at a young age. And then once I got into pro ball and I didn't need the, the, the 20 extra bucks, um, I ended up, it was a good icebreaker for me. In my first big league camp, I'm, I'm in big league camp. I'm 19 years old. There's Terry Steinbach and, and Ron Coomer and Latroy Hawkins and Kirby Puckett. They're playing games, card games. And they're in the middle of, of shuffling or something. I asked them to, to, if I could use their deck. And they kind of looked at me like, like I was the bat boy or something. They didn't even know who I was. And I ended up showing them a couple of tricks. And from that moment on, it made, it made me – uh, a lot more comfortable in 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 the clubhouse, but it also made them recognize who I was and not be afraid to kind of step out of my comfort zone comfort zone and and show who I am. So it, it's really served me. They've really served me well over the years. Mike, too, I didn't say you were you were an amateur photographer during your playing days. How did you still do that at all, or or? Were you- I do when I get a chance. Now it's more of taking pictures of my kids because there's only so many landmarks here in Chesapeake, Virginia that I can take photos of. But um, I started in 2011. And what inspired me was my brother-in-law. We, we have a beach house in, in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. My brother-in-law she always used to take really cool looking pictures. And so I started learning. As you can see, I, I, I like to read. And uh, I started reading everything I could on photography and how to take photos and how to compose a photo. And once I got about four to five months into learning, I ended up buying a camera, buying a nice camera. And it was 2011. And one of my things was I was, that was my first time through free agency. I was with the twins and I didn't know if I was going to be in the American league the next year. And so I ended up photographing all of the American league stadiums and, um, you know, really learning how to do it, not just taking little pictures of it, but really learning how to compose those, those stadiums. And, you know, it's a good thing that I did because I never played in the American League again. So you ever, did you ever put them into a book, Mike, or, or anything like that? I've got, if you can see this book yeah. right here with some baseballs um, up there, I, I did it for myself. I never, I never published one. I, I, I thought about cool. it. I'd love to, to publish it. And I was, my, my thought was to, to give the proceeds to charity and do signings in every, every clubhouse store of every stadium that we went and played at. But it just, it never transpired. Why could you bring it down? Is there any way to, just to bring it down in front of you? Sure. Yeah. So I entitled it um, Through the Batter's Eye. and um, It's a nice cover. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, and these are photos that I took. That says that's a very very professional book. Yeah, very very professional. City, so I'll tell Mark Levine if you want to come back to New York, you can help walk out to Riddicam or something. There we go. There we go. Last couple, you've been with um, Minnesota as an assistant and GM. Uh, how do you like that part of the game? Now, I know you didn't do it, you know, but the pandemic kind of hurt you like everybody. So, I mean, how do you like that part of it? I enjoy it. I enjoy seeing the other side of the game. Um, and even in that, in that role, my, my, my job, my role has kind of evolved. Um, it started out the first couple of years was, excuse me, more so talking about acquisitions, whether it be trades or free agency and, and um, 
dynamics of the clubhouse of bringing in certain players and whatnot. And I still do. And we still talk about those things, but I've kind of shifted a little bit more into the minor leagues now, not necessarily coaching, but trying to talk with our coaches and, and our player development people and, and just figure out uh, their methods of developing players and kind of collaborating on certain things, collaborating on our mental performance side of the game. Um, sports psychology side. So I, I enjoy kind of sticking my toes in the, in the waters of a, of a bunch of different aspects of professional, of major league baseball. And you work with our, one of my own buddies, Troy Hawkins is with you. I, I thought Troy would still be pitching. I mean, he's still, uh, he's something he looks else. Like he can. Yeah. And you do, I spoke to Johan Satani the other day. He said, you see him occasionally. I mean, not this year, but you know, Johan lives in Fort Myers and uh, yeah. he's going yeah, to do some. We would see Johan. We would see Johan when we, uh, when I would go to spring training and, and he would come and I think he's going to take his hand at broadcasting a little That's bit. That's what he told me. He's going to do some games. Yeah. He's going to do yeah. some games. Hey, one, one last story. I got to like one of my favorite Mike Dyer stories is Harmon Killebrew. I know you took number three in Colorado from him. And you told me you were signing balls once. And I think he said something to one of our players, take your time writing your name. And, and didn't uh, Killer chastise you at one point? To... <laughs> yeah. I think if you, if you ever played for the Minnesota Twins in the time that Harmon was around us, you got chastised from him by, about your autograph. And we were in Mankato, Minnesota for the Twins caravan that they always do. And it was just Harmon and myself. We were the only two people at the night program. Mankato is a big program. We had about 900 to 1,100 people in the, in the audience. And after every evening program, you would sign autographs. And Harmon and I are signing autographs. We get through about 20, 30 minutes of it. And some kid gives him a ball. And he looks at it and he goes, who signed this? And the kid kind of looks at Harmon like, what are you talking about? There's only one other person here. So obviously it was a rhetorical question. And um, Harmon looks at me and he looks at the ball and he points to it. And he says, Michael, he says, if this signature comes through this line one more time, I'm getting up and I'm walking out of here. And That's obviously funny. the only person that they're going to be mad at is you because I'm letting it be known. And we still had probably, you know, another hour and 15 minutes of signing that we had to do. So from that moment forward, I believe that was like 2004, 2003, 2004 area. From that moment forward, I made a point uh, to write legibly so you can read every letter of, of my signature. You might not think it's the prettiest signature in the world, but at least when it's all said and done, 15, 20 years from now, if you still care, you knew that I signed the ball or the it's card. It's great. I chose what a guy you are. Hey, Mike, I appreciate your time. And listen, even though you were a free year, you're a good friend, a great impact on the Mets season and never be forgotten. Again, I appreciate your time. and Stay healthy. And hopefully we'll get to see you sometime soon in the next near future. Absolutely, Jay. My pleasure, man. Yeah. I appreciate it. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. 
We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.